0: Today's gospel, as I mentioned before, is talking about love. I have a little bit of a story about love. It seems that there was a young lady who had been looking for the love of her life, but was not having any luck whatsoever. So one day, she decides to visit a computer dating service and requested, I'm looking for a spouse. Can you please help me find a suitable one? The matchmaker said, Well, what exactly are you looking for? Well, let me see. He needs to be good-looking, polite, humorous, sporty, knowledgeable, good at singing and dancing, willing to accompany me the whole day at home during my leisure hour if I don't go out, be able to tell me interesting stories when I need a companion for conversation, and be silent when I want to rest. The matchmaker enters all this information into the computer. In a matter of moments, the computer spits out the results. She hands them to the woman. The results read, buy a television. <laughs> In today's gospel, Matthew draws us into Jesus teaching at the temple with parables, as he always teaches, and he is repeatedly interrupted and challenged. And I put a little picture in the sermon notes of Jesus teaching at the temple, and I'm pretty sure these guys in the front row are the Pharisees and maybe some of the Sadducees also as well. As he's teaching, he's repeatedly interrupted, challenged, and then the reading before this gospel, which we did not read, in Matthew 22, verses 23 to 33, Jesus had just silent the Sadducees. And these guys were... Kind of the leaders who ran the temple. They were responsible for animal sacrifices. They were closely connected to the Roman government that governed Israel. And they thought it was ridiculous to believe in the resurrection of the dead. But quoting for, from scripture, Jesus has just shut them down by saying, The God is not the God of the dead, but of the living. And before that, even earlier in the week, Jesus has shut down the Pharisees and the Herodians who supported King Herod. And these guys are wanting to trap him in his own words. And that last, we read this last week in the gospel about him paying taxes to, God, to Caesar or to God, which Jesus answered perfectly, as he always does. But the Pharisees don't give up. And today they take another crack at trying to trap him with his words. So they send a lawyer. If you're going to send something out to do, you send a lawyer. And my apologies to any lawyers that are here today. <laughs> and the request he asks is, the great, uh, tell me the greatest commandment. But he's not requesting, tell me the greatest commandment of the top 10. He wants to know what is the greatest commandment of all 613 commandments that the Jewish people followed from the first five books. Of the Bible known as the Torah and he wants them to select the most important one out of 613. The 613 commandments are broken down into 365 negative negative commandments like don't do this, don't steal, don't lie, don't commit murder and then there's 248 positive ones like yes do this, do believe in God, do worship God, do read the Shema. So he has to answer the question. And today, when we think of Pharisees, we think of something like a, a bad term. But the Pharisees were a sect within Judaism which worked as a social movement, seeking to change society with greater faithfulness to God and following the Torah. They also championed synagogue worship in addition to going to the temple. Well, Jesus also taught faithfulness to God and worship in the synagogue and in the temple. So many of the people during this time would have thought of Jesus as, he's like a Pharisee. They have similar schools of thought. And this debate seems sort of like an in-house argument between Jesus and the Pharisees, but the stakes are higher because the Pharisees in Jerusalem see how popular Jesus is. He has marched into the city to cries of Hosanna, and laying on the palms, and they want to shut this Jesus movement down before it goes any further. So this question that they're posing to Jesus doesn't come from a place of wanting to learn, but a desire to trip him up. Jesus says something that will justify arresting him, they will go for it. But the question is, they ask is actually a no-brainer. Everyone who is Jewish knows the Shema. It is fastened to their foreheads. You've probably seen pictures. These guys have a little box-looking thing on their forehead. It is also fastened to their doorpost. And the Shema says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. So Jesus' answer is a good answer. And it comes straight from Scripture. And the Pharisees are probably all nodding to one another in agreement. Yeah, you know, he got us. That's a good answer. And they're probably ready to walk away. But Jesus isn't done yet. He's like, wait a minute, fellas. And he adds another commandment from Leviticus, chapter 19, verse 18. Love your neighbor as yourself. Okay, this is a little unexpected, but still well within everyone's understanding of what God wants from us. Loving our neighbors as ourselves. It's certainly a good commandment to follow, and it follows the first. The explanation Jesus gives for naming both of these commandments makes sense because the first five of the Ten Commandments are all about loving God, and the last five certainly show us how to love our neighbors. Well, putting these two ideas next to one another may have been a new thing for some of those listening. It is well within the bounds of acceptable Jewish belief. So, so far, Jesus has passed the test, and he has said nothing controversial and nothing heretical. We are not just to love God, but also love our neighbor. And not just God and our neighbor, but we are to love ourselves. As only then can we love our neighbors as ourselves. Everything hangs on love, as I said at the beginning. And Jesus teaches about a form of love that in Greek is called agape, a Greco-Christian term. It's a term for the highest form of love. It is a self-giving love, which is more concerned about the other person than oneself. Agape love starts with God and God's love for us. With this love of God and God's love for me, I can then begin to see other people as God sees them. I can even begin to see myself as God sees me. From this experience, I reach out in love to others with that love that begins in the very life and nature of God. And so God's love for your husband or your wife is not dependent on his or her likes and dislikes, their job or their mood, or anything else so changeable. God's love for your brother and sister does not depend on whether he or she has just gotten on your nerves. God's love for your co-workers does not depend on their likability. God's love for your friends does not depend on whether or not they let you down. God's love for everyone else is like God's love for you. Friend, in today's divided world, in our own divided country, divided by politics and race, And everything. We need that form of love, that agape love. And throughout all these tests and challenges, Jesus keeps pointing back to the supremacy of God. And who can argue with that? But the real question isn't about the law or doctrine. The real question is one that is deeper than any of the religious leaders have asked so far it is about the identity of the Christ, the identity of the Messiah. And so, Jesus turns things around and now puts the question to the Pharisees and Sadducees and Herodians and even the audience. And it is not a trick question, as the Sadducees and Pharisees have been doing to him. And Jesus isn't being sly. He really wants to know what they think. But instead of asking, what do you expect the Messiah to do, or when do you think the Messiah will come? Jesus asks, Whose son is he? And the Pharisees answer automatically from the tradition of the prophets. And it is a sound, scripturally based answer. Again, the one that everyone expects in that audience today. The Messiah will be the son of David. The son of David is the Christ, is the Messiah. It is the title for the promised Savior and Redeemer who will bring salvation to the Jewish people and all of mankind. Jesus points out to them that this Savior, this Redeemer, this Son of David, was more than a descendant of their blessed King David. Because David himself said in Psalm 110, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand, till I put your enemies under your feet. It sounds kind of like a riddle but it is the coming son of David who is greater than David himself. The promise God made to David and the prophetic writings about the identity of the one who comes to save Israel all recognize that the Messiah must come from David's line. The assumption is that the Messiah will be a son of David, included also the understanding that this future anointed one would be a human king to rule over Israel, when peace finally came through the world. This Messiah would not be a miracle worker. He would not be a prophet. He would simply get to be the final king of Israel, descended directly from King David. This was their understanding. How is it, then, that David calls him Lord? And Jesus wants to know. But at this point in history, no one thinks of it that way. No one has considered that David might have been referring to his own descendant as Lord. And Jesus forces them to see Psalm 110 in a whole new light. And that light reveals that even King David would bow down to this descendant, indicating that the Messiah would be more than merely human. The Messiah was coming from God. So in three short movements, Jesus has taken the most basic, common understanding of Jewish faith, loving God alone, and expanded it to including loving others, and then taken the most fundamental Jewish belief about Israel's anticipated Savior and turned it on his head. The Messiah comes from God and is divine. The Messiah is both the son of David and the son of God. Putting these two ideas together was a good deal more radical than putting the other verses at the beginning together, the one from Deuteronomy and Leviticus, about loving God and loving your neighbor. Loving God and neighbor are indeed the first and second most important commandments, but establishing Jesus' identity as the Messiah is the ultimate point of the entire conversation. Anyone who believes that Jesus is in fact the Messiah must believe that he is both human and divine. And no wonder the Pharisees are left speechless. To consider that the Savior they have hoped for might actually come from God is more than they can handle. I can just see their heads exploding. And from this point forward, they did not, or care to, answer him any more questions. Because if they had answered Jesus' question the way they knew that he had, they had to answer it, they would have confirmed to the public, that Jesus was, in fact, the Christ, that he was the Messiah. So these men sought to entrap Jesus in his words and could not even bring themselves to answer even one more question that could entangle them deeper into Jesus' net. Therefore, the Pharisees, Sadducees, Herodian scribes, elders, and all the lawyers who did not always get along now and were not the closest of friends, didn't ask him any more questions, and they joined together to defeat him. You may recall some axioms, politics makes strange bedfellows, or the enemy of my enemy is my friend. After today's gospel reading, these enemies are unified. They're all in the same bed together. They set aside their differences for one reason, to make sure that Jesus is dead and buried and to do it in such a way that they all, if possible, could come out smelling like roses, so that the people will follow them and forget about this prophet of Jesus, of Nazareth. Jesus is Lord is perhaps the earliest confession of the Christian church. In Romans 10, verse 9, Paul writes, because if you confess with your lips that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart, that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 3, we read, Therefore, I want you to understand that no one, speaking by the Spirit of God, ever says, Let Jesus be cursed. And no one can say, Jesus is Lord, except by the Holy Spirit. Now, saying out loud that Jesus is Lord was a very dangerous and radical thing to do in that first century Palestine. Naming Jesus as Lord identified that the very human carpenter's kid was and came from God. And it could get you in a whole lot of trouble with the synagogue for blasphemy or crucified by the Romans for refusing to acknowledge that Caesar was the Lord. One didn't say it lightly. If you admitted out loud, Jesus is Lord, you had to be willing to face the consequences and face your punishment. And that punishment had to really mean it. But claiming Jesus as Lord is the only hope we have. We aren't very good at keeping the commandments to love God with all our heart, soul, and strength. Too often our hearts are distracted by our own desires. Our souls become shallow and closed off to anything that might cause us discomfort and force us to change. And our strength is often spent in ways that do not honor God. We want to love God, but sometimes we don't know how. We have forgotten that the primary component of biblical love is a commitment to God. And sometimes we're not very good at commitment. Which makes it hard for us to do very well when it comes to loving our neighbor also. Especially when that neighbor is someone we don't like. Or someone who is different from us, looks different than us, speaks different than us. We forget that the kind of love God has in mind isn't just an emotion, but the hard work of caring for about others' needs than our own. Is that agape love? No matter how hard we try or how much we want to, we can't seem to give to keep God's greatest commandment, or even the second one. And if we cannot keep God's law, our only hope is depending on God's grace. Our only salvation is to call Jesus Lord, to recognize him as the one who became flesh for our sakes, who died so that we might live, who rose again so that we might have eternal life. So if we're going to go around saying Jesus is Lord, we have to really mean it. We can't just give it lip service. It has to show up in the way that we live our very lives depend on it so with this in mind I ask you and I ask myself today have you have I perfectly kept God's law do you love God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind do you faultlessly love your neighbor as yourself do you need a Christ a Savior a Redeemer and if so Who is that Christ? Is Jesus your Christ? Is he my Christ? He is the Christ. But I ask, is he your Christ? My Christ. Have you, or do you put other things, other people, other concerns, other priorities before him? He comes today with forgiveness for you. He has won that forgiveness at the cross. Even though he was perfect, and a holy one. He allowed himself to die a lawbreaker's death in your place, in my place, so that you and I and all people could have forgiveness. This is what Christ has accomplished for you. This is who Christ Jesus is, that very grace of God that I talked about. Grace for you, grace for me, and for all. So, Jesus looks at us today as he once looked at Peter and he asked, Who do you say that I am? The Pharisees and Sadducees are done asking questions and putting him to the test. But over the next few Sundays, as we end the church calendar year, Jesus is going to put us to the test and he's going to be asking us some questions. When we read from Matthew 25, 1-13, about the ten bridesmaids, he will ask us, Will you, will we, keep our light burning for him? When we read about the talents in Matthew 2514 14-30, will we invest our talents? When we read in Matthew 25, 31-46, will we feed the hungry? Will we love our neighbor and loving God? And will we love God in loving our neighbor? Will we mean it when we say, Jesus is Lord? Let us pray. Lord, have mercy upon us. Take our minds and think through them. Take our lips and speak through them. Take our hearts and set them on fire. For the sake of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, amen.